1988, I was a sophomore in college. I was kind of a Christian. I was baptized when I was in elementary school, but by the time I got to high school, you know, I had questions that nobody seemed to want to answer. And so God stopped making sense to me. So I went off to college, and I went to church for a little bit, and I just kind of gave the whole thing up. I was taking a break from God. I, um, I wanted to find out what life was like without having to worry about this whole God thing. Well, fall semester, sophomore year, it was a kind of a tough semester. Uh, the schoolwork was pretty hard. Uh, and I was having some problems with my friend group. So I was pretty isolated, and I was feeling adrift. Now, I wasn't clinically diagnosed or anything like that, but I had some common symptoms that, that were like depression-like. For example, I missed a lot of class. I slept during the day. I, I stayed in my dorm room. And then at night, I would go out and wander in the deserted streets of Berkeley. And then winter break, my sister paid for me to go to a retreat for students at uh, Mount Hermon Conference Center in Santa Cruz. And uh, I thought, well, you know, free food, what the heck. <laughs> so there I was the first day, and, and, and you know, I got off the bus, put my stuff in the, in the, in the, in the rooms, and, and I walked into the, to the meeting hall of the conference center. There was nobody in there. Okay, this is like first day, nobody's in there. Not one song has been sung, not one talk's been given. I'm walking between these rows of seats. And it's kind of hard to describe what happened next. It's like, I mean, the only way I can say it is I had an encounter with God. And I know the question you're having is like, well, what was it like, Charles? What was that like? Well, well it's hard to describe, right? There's just these different sensations that's going on. But the one thing I remember very clearly was this invitation from God. He said, do you want to come back? And I said, yes. Okay. And, and I still have my questions. I still have my questions. But somehow they all felt somewhat, somehow irrelevant at that moment. And um, now you're probably thinking, you know, Charles, that was just all in your head. And I'm like, yeah, I know. In, in fact, that's exactly what I thought. For days and weeks and months, I'm asking myself, was that all in my head? Did I just make all of that up? Huh? That's exactly it. I was thinking that nonstop. But here's what I know is real. December 26, 1988, from that day forward, my life has never been the same. My dreams for my life changed. The things I wanted changed. My roommate noticed. My friends noticed. There were these significant moments along the way, yes, but that day was the start of all of it. Now, now I want to remind you that's my story. Okay? And everybody's story is different. Some people have these moments of change. Others have these steady, you know, small moments from childhood onward that builds up to faith. Everybody's story is different. I want to remind you of that. But here's what's true for all of us who are Christ followers. We have the privilege to see God in our lives, working in our lives and in the people around us. We have stories. And we're called to tell our stories. Today I want to get us thinking about telling our stories. And to do that, I want to get into the story of a guy in the Bible. His name is Paul. Today, we're going to learn about Paul's story. Now, before I get going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Um, greetings to all of you here in this room with me and those of you watching in Fitchburg, Upper House, Gospel Fusion, Traditions, 
Uh, big shout out to those of you who are watching online and those of you who are, watching, who are listening to our podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, to the Spanish speakers, and to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're here with us. Now, we are in our series on the book of Acts this fall, and we're in part two called To the Ends of the Earth. And part one is a series about who we are as the church, okay? And that was 10 weeks. And now part two is five weeks in which we're looking at stories in the book of Acts where people are bearing witness to Jesus. And we want to learn from these stories how we can bear witness to Jesus. So uh, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're looking at the story of Paul. And we want to look at his story and learn how we can tell our stories. So chapter 9, verse 1 begins like this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. All right, so a few things to comment on. First of all, this guy's Jewish name is Saul. His Roman name is Paul. He probably had both names when he was born. Now, in the, in the, in the uh, book of Acts, it, it begins with using the name Saul. But around chapter 13 onward, uh, Luke switches to Paul. And in all his letters, Paul uses Paul. So I'm going to call him Paul, even though it says Saul here. Is that okay? All right, thanks. <laughs> okay. Second thing, the way. That was really the first name for the Jesus community, for people who, who, who follow Jesus. Nobody's sure where that name comes from, okay? It's just kind of, it's just there, and, it's, and so we don't really know. A lot of guesses, but nobody knows. Now, the third thing about this paragraph, okay, something just absolutely fascinating for if you're a first century history nerd, and that is this, okay? That the Jewish authorities in the first century actually had extradition power under the Roman Empire. Right, you notice that, right? That they have the ability to, to go to another country that's also under the Roman rule, and bring back criminals, okay? They have the ability to extradite people. And this power of extradition is actually noted in the book of Maccabees, as well as a later Jewish historian named Josephus, who actually says and records that the Julius Caesar, yeah, the Julius Caesar, actually confirmed this right of extradition with Jewish authorities. And here we see it in action right here. Way cool, right? Just nod your head. Just go ahead, nod your head. Thank you. <laughs> One more thing, Damascus, Damascus. Paul is in Jerusalem. This is Judea, this is Samaria, this is traditional Jewish homeland. Paul is going to Damascus. Now there are a large Jewish population in Damascus and somehow the people of the way, Christ followers, they're now thriving in Damascus and they're thriving in the synagogues. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about how this happened, that Paul decided to persecute the Christians in Jerusalem. The goal was to disperse them, to drive them out, to separate Christ followers from the leaders because he thinks that if you cut off the head of the church, the church is dead, right? Wrong. Christ followers spread out and they went into all these major cities in the Roman Empire. And because they're Jewish, what do they do when they get there? They go to the synagogues. The synagogue is the gathering place of Jewish people when they're far from the temple, in the foreign places. And what do they do when they get to the synagogues? They talk about Jesus. Yeah, they talk about Jesus. And so what happens now? Paul's playing whack-a-mole. 
okay? Christian communities that are popping up all over these major cities in the Roman Empire. Now, 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 now Paul would be like, okay, if, now think about this. Like, Paul would be like, okay, you know what? I did my best, right? I drove the church out of Jerusalem. That was pretty good, right? Well, for Paul, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. But Paul is going to go out and eradicate this movement. And if it, even if it requires petitioning the high priest to get the extradition paper and travel to Damascus, Paul will see it through. Now, that's pretty extreme, right? Paul's pretty much signing up for a life of traveling around the Roman Empire, serving as the religious grand inquisitor, you know, carrying papers from the high priest, and is going to go arrest and interrogate fellow Jews who are following Jesus. That's fanatical. In fact, Paul recognizes it. That's how he, this is how he talks about it in chapter 26. Right, this is Paul talking here. Paul says, I was so obsessed with persecuting them, the Christians, the, the people of the way, that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And so that takes us to the first major question about Paul's life. Why is Paul so obsessed? Now, if we understand why Paul does what he does, we need to understand Paul's story within the story of the Jewish people. Now, Paul is born in a town called Tarsus. It's the capital of the Roman province Cilicia. He was born into a Jewish family. Actually, he's born into a family of Pharisees, which is a strict Jewish sect, which means he grew up in a place that valued deeply learning about the Hebrew Bible and the traditions of the fathers. At a young age, he was sent and traveled to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, which is, who is one of the major, most famous first-century Jewish rabbis. So Phariseeism is a huge part of Paul's identity. And if we want to understand Paul, we need to understand something, some basic beliefs of the first-century Pharisees. So here goes. How Paul as a Pharisee sees the world. So speaking from Paul's perspective. Number one, who are we? We are Israel. We're God's chosen people with a mission to be a blessing to the world. Now, we know this from, you know, the book of Genesis, way back, right? The ancestors of the Jews, God called Abraham, says, hey, you are going to form a nation to be a blessing to the world. Number two, why do we lose our land and kingdom? Well, it's from the Old Testament, because our ancestors rebelled against God and did not keep God's teaching, the Torah. And God has not forgiven his people. Well, number three, how do we know God has not forgiven his people? Well, that's easy. Because the Jewish people are still spread out all over the world. Right? You, you have some Jews living in the homeland, yes, and you have a temple. But most of the Jews are living in the diaspora. And there's no Jewish king on the throne in Jerusalem. The Romans are in charge. No, 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 no. That's not the real kingdom of God, which means God has not yet forgiven his people. Number four, how do we become reconciled to God then? How do we get forgiveness? The Jewish people worldwide and those in the homeland need to start to obey the Torah and do it right. If everybody can really focus on obeying the Torah properly, that will show God that, hey, we truly repented. And then God will act, and God will restore the nation of Israel. Number five. So why is Jesus a problem? Well, Jesus, if you remember, he teaches, that, he teaches against the food laws, and he kind of relaxes some of the Sabbath rules. 
In other words, Jesus is a false prophet. He's leading the people astray. And, and there's no way Jesus is the real Messiah because the real Jewish Messiah would never be stripped naked and hanged on a cross by the Romans. That can never, ever happen. Number six, but Jesus is dead. Why are the followers of Jesus a problem? Well, the followers of Jesus are teaching this crazy idea that Jesus resurrected and he ascended into heaven. Now, we Pharisees, we believe in the resurrection. The Bible teaches the resurrection, but it's the resurrection of everyone at the end of history when the, when the kingdom of God arrives. There's nothing in the Hebrew Bible about the resurrection of one person. Not in there. And second, this whole thing about ascending to heaven, that's crazy. That's mixing human with God. That's blasphemous. And so these people are leading people astray. We got to take care of them. Number seven. Why not live and let live? And just let God handle this. Now, there, there's actually different schools of thought within Phariseeism all right, about how to handle situations like this. But Paul clearly aligns with a group that focuses on the biblical idea called zeal. The zeal comes out of the Old Testament, comes out of the Hebrew Bible, and it teaches that God responds favorably to individuals who are zealous for his kingdom. Now, there's a story coming out of the story of Numbers, which is like about 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. A guy named Phineas, at a time when people rebel, his own people were rebelling against God, he takes a spear and he jams it and runs it through two people. Okay, wow, like, right? Well, this is what God has to say about Phineas. Numbers 25, verse 10. Then Yahweh, um, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. By spearing two of his own people, Phineas has turned God's anger away from his people. Why? Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. God is zealous for his name. And because Phineas is zealous for God's name, God forgives his people. Zeal is this inner fire, this passion for God's honor and for his kingdom. And the Old Testament teaches that a few individuals acting out of zealousness can achieve the redemption of God's people. Do you see how this concept of zeal can motivate somebody like Paul? Paul's like, I see myself as a zealous person, zealous for God's kingdom. And by, by persecuting the church, God might see my zealousness and decide to restore the kingdom of Israel. And so he begins persecuting Christians, first in Jerusalem, and then he goes and grabs the papers from the high priest, and he heads to Damascus. Zeal for God's kingdom drives him. And all of that changes in one glorious moment. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is the turning point of Paul's life. Now some people label this as a Paul's conversion experience. I, I, would, I would want to be very careful about that language. Okay? Because when you say conversion, it sounds like Paul's converting religions. He's changing religion. He's converting from Judaism to Christianity. And, and Paul would not see it that way. In fact, he would strongly disagree with that. Okay? In Paul's mind, he is not converting from Judaism to Christianity. He is now encountering what Judaism was always meant to be. So here's what Paul learns at that moment on the road to Damascus. Well, number one, he, he hears Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means Jesus is alive, which means Jesus resurrected. Gosh darn it, those Christ followers are actually right. Jesus is actually resurrected. And, and the Hebrew Bible teaches that resurrection marks the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. It marks the beginning of this new age. Now, it is surprising, yes, because you expect everybody to be resurrected, okay? But somehow, this is what happened. Resurrection means the coming of the new kingdom of God. Second thing, he hears Jesus speak from heaven, which means Jesus is in heaven, which means Jesus really did ascend into heaven, which means Jesus is both human and God. Huh. Now, that, that's really unexpected, okay, and really, really kind of crazy. But if these things are true, then for Paul, there is only one inescapable conclusion. And that is the God that he has worshipped all his life has come to earth and has become the king, the Messiah of the new kingdom of God. The creator God of the universe has taken on human flesh and has redefined what it means to be the Messiah. Which means we need to rethink and rethink and re-understand the cross of Jesus not as the shameful failure of some human Messiah wannabe, but is the ultimate act of the power and triumph of the Son of God who comes into our world, absorbs the sin of the whole world onto himself, creates a new spiritual unity for the people of God, and defeats and conquers death all in one brilliant stroke of love and self-sacrifice. Now, I don't know whether Paul sees all of that in that instant, I wouldn't put it past him. He's pretty brilliant. Okay? But it doesn't matter because Paul spends the next three days thinking about this. Right? It says Paul is blind for three days, which is your basic English 101 symbolism. Right? God makes him blind because you know, he doesn't see right. He's blind. And he spends three days blind, and he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. He is thinking things through. He's thinking about everything he knows about the Bible, everything he knows about God, everything he knows about the history of his people. And he pulls it all together. And, and, and once he does, once he comes to see that the God he has worshipped has become human, has become the Messiah, has died and resurrected, is now ruling the kingdom of God on earth in heaven... Everything falls into place. Everything flows from that. And the New Testament that we have, yeah, a full one-third of it is Paul working out the implications of what he saw and what he's heard on the road to Damascus. So Acts chapter 9 
captures this, one of the most momentous events in human history. Just like that, Paul is transformed from the persecutor of the church to its most ardent defender and advocate. Paul's writings, Paul's church planting in, 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 in the Eastern Mediterranean world shapes our world today. But I want to focus our, the rest of our time not just on Paul's story, but on something else that Luke is doing, doing with the story. Okay? And that is this. Paul, Luke tells the story of Paul in Acts chapter 9, but if you actually read the whole book of Acts, you'll notice that the story shows up two more times. Paul actually tells the story in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. So the story shows up three times. And these three times, there are details that are different in all three. Bible scholars argue about this. They write articles, they write books, go back and forth. I don't have time to get into all of it. Okay? However, I think this might be helpful to help you think about what's going on. And that is this. I'm betting Paul's told that story a gazillion times. And I'm thinking every time he tells it, he tells it slightly different. Why? Because he's a good speaker. He tailors his story to the people he's talking to. So here's what I think is going on in the, gospel, in the, in the book of Acts. Okay? Luke tells the story of Paul in chapter 9, and then he intentionally records two other versions of Paul's retelling of the story to two different audiences to give us a master class on how to tell stories that connect with people you're talking to. Luke wants us to learn from Paul about how to tell stories. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I don't have enough time to do both chapter 22 and chapter 26. In fact, I don't have the time to do chapter 22. But we're going to go to chapter 22 and look at it and learn, and learn from it briefly. Okay? So if you have your Bible with you, take a look at, go, go to Acts chapter 22. It's not in your journal, I apologize. And um, if you, this is a fun exercise, okay, if you want to do this while you're you know, flipping your pages. Um, make copies of chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. Put them side by side. And, you know, do it with some friends. Make observation about where they're different. And try to figure out why Paul make changes the way he does. Okay? It's a fun exercise. All right. Acts chapter 22. We're toward the end of the book, and everything has changed. Paul is now one of the major leaders in the church. He has been planting churches in the, in the Mediterranean world, all over the place, and he has become a notorious figure among the Jewish people. So in chapter 21, he comes back to Jerusalem. He is at the temple. Well, he gets recognized. A mob forms. They grab him. They drag him out of the temple, and they're beating on him up. And a Roman commander and his soldiers, they come and rescue Paul, and they carry him to the barracks of the Roman army. P Paul gets the step. Right? He is surrounded by Roman soldiers. There's a mob over here trying to kill him, and he decides to talk to them. And what does he say? His story about the road to Damascus. Lesson number one. We bear witness by telling our stories. You see, people think bearing witness has to do with teaching Bible or answering hard apologetics questions, right? Figuring out theology, Rethink that. Paul in the book of Acts does a lot of talking. Oh, yeah. 
He's teaching, he's arguing, he's debating, but when push comes to shove, when times get critical, what does Paul do? He goes back to his story. This is what I saw, this is what I heard. Right? And something critical to understand here. You see, when you argue theology, when you argue philosophy, when you argue the Bible, people can argue back with you. But when, you, when Paul tells this story, there's no argument. The only question is, is Paul a reliable person? That's the nature of testimony. When we bear witness with our stories, we tell people what we have seen and what we have heard, there's no argument. The only question is, are we people who are reliable? That's how testimonies work. Okay, that's how testimonies work. So, do you know your stories? Do you know the stories of where you have seen Jesus work in your life? Do you know how to tell them? All right. Let's see how Paul tells this story. Verse 3, chapter, after chapter 22, Paul begins, says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So lesson number two, tell your story in a way that connect with the people you're talking to. Notice that, right? Paul says, I'm Jewish, just like you. Okay, yeah, I was born somewhere else. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was brought up in Jerusalem. You know, you guys are all Jerusalemites. I get, you get, okay, I studied, I'm a Gamaliel. You know Gamaliel. He's very famous. In fact, some of you might be his students. I, tr I was training the law, just like you all are. And guess what? I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I am one of you. Do you see that? It, look, when you're talking about Bible, when you're talking about theology, okay, that's about logic. That's about rationality, that's about evidence. When you tell stories, it's about you. Okay? So talk in a way that connect with people. Talk in a way that connect with your, your, your friends, your, 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 your family, your, 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 your coworkers. Talk in a way that people go, oh, that person believes in Jesus and they're just like me. I think I can believe in Jesus as well. Okay? Talk in a way that connect with people. Let's keep going. Verse 6, Paul tells this story. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Lesson number three. Tell your experience of Jesus. Paul went up and said, this is what I saw, this is what I heard. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's Paul. It's easy for somebody like Paul. He's Paul. You know, I kind of disagree. I don't think it's easy for Paul. You see, there's nothing easy about standing in up in front of a bunch of people and tell everybody that you're hearing voices from a guy that everybody thinks is dead. There's nothing easy about that, okay? It's hard, okay? Now, now the, so people, actually, some people prefer talking apologetics, theology, Bible. Why? Because it's out there, okay? It's out there. But when you tell your own story, you put yourself on the line. You put yourself alongside as a person who validates Jesus to a world that thinks that Jesus has been dead 
for 2,000 years. Which means you're now included among people who have conversations with a dead 2,000-year-old guy. I think we're getting at the heart of the problem. Why it's hard to tell stories about your experience with Jesus, okay? It is hard. It is difficult. It is difficult for Paul. It is difficult for us. Now, some of you are saying, man, you know what? Yeah, that may be the case, but, you know, it's a heck of a lot easier if you've had a story like Paul's. Right? Paul had this you know, amazing experience, and then he had the whole persecuted the church thing going on. Right? His story is way better than mine. Right? My, my story, I look at his story, I look at my story, I'm going, my story does not compare. In response, I have two things to say to you. Number one, you should look down at chapter 2022. Because Paul has a great story, yes, but what happens? The mob stopped listening, and they shout him down. Okay? Great story got him nowhere because it does not depend on the quality of your story. God is the author of your story and he wants you to bear witness to Jesus exactly as you are. And God partners with you via his Holy Spirit to do his mission, to do his work. That's been the case from the very get-go. From the very beginning when Jesus resurrected, he has counted on his followers to bear witness to the world that he is alive. That's the mission, folks. That's the calling. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is hard. It is intimidating. It is nerve-wracking. It is not, it's not easy to do this. But if you call yourself a Christ follower, you are called to share your story about what Jesus has done in your life and the life of those around you. It's to... That's, it's to get up in front of the world and say, hey, Jesus is real. He is alive. I saw him do this in my life. Okay. It's hard. Second thing, your story is better than you think. It really is. Your experiences are better than you think. The problem is, is, is this, okay? I, I see people who are good at storytelling. I mean, they, they can spin compelling, fun, interesting stories from just the most mundane of incidents. They're just natural storytellers. I'm not one of them. Okay, I'm not. I don't think about telling my life story. I just don't think about it. People have to go, Charles, you should talk about that. Like, oh, yeah. Then I have to sit and think about it and figure out how to tell it. It takes me a lot of time. And if you're like me, it takes time to reflect. It takes time to remember the stories of your life. So, I want to introduce you to this fantastic tool, okay? This is, this is just so awesome. This tool is called the Story Collective. It's developed by Christian Eggers, who is working with us at our downtown site. She, in collaboration with a few other young adults, they created this tool, and they've used it for groups of people, and it worked out great. It's a tool that helps you remember your stories and figure out how to tell the story. You can pick up a copy of this on your way out in all the sites and venues, or you can download this from our website, the Story Collective. So, we are in part two of the series on the book of Acts. Part one is about our identity. Part two is about learning how to bear witness to Jesus. So, there's homework in part two. Last week, Pastor Matt invited us to pray for people in our lives, those who might be checking out the Christian faith. Today, my homework for you is Figure out your stories. It's really simple. Step one, 
Get a copy of the Story Collective. Part two, use it. Okay? It's just a few pages. It's really not long. If you do 15 minutes a day, you'll get it done this week. Okay? So use it during your time of prayer or reading the Bible. Go, go to a coffee shop and just work on this. 15 minutes a day. And those of you who are in life groups, great. Okay? You can do it together as a group, or you can actually practice telling your stories in your life groups. Right? Call ahead. Arrange for some people to be prepared to tell stories in your life groups. And for those of you who are not in groups, call up some friends who are Christ followers. Grab some extra copies of the Story Collective. Do it together. It's a great exercise. We are Christ followers. We are people called to bear witness to Jesus. And uh, at its heart, bearing witness is not about apologetics, theology, teaching the Bible. At its heart, bearing witness is simply this. I know Jesus is alive. I saw him at work in my life. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we are amazed by a person like Paul who has, who has such zeal for your kingdom and, and how you turned his zealousness around so he has zeal for you and your kingdom as it truly should have been and truly should be. And we're grateful for him and, and how you gifted him and how you used him in history and in, in, in our lives. We, we benefit by reading his letters and his things he came up with. But we know that you're the one who gave him all that. You're the author of his faith, just like you are the author of our faith. You're the author of our stories. So, Father, we pray that we embrace our calling as people who bear witness, as people who tell stories, to tell the world, yes, we stand on your side because we have seen you. You are our God, and we are your people. And all God's people said, amen.